about cocktails that are stylish, movies great or phony, and how Tony should win a Matthew, and Matthew should win a Tony. But in the meantime, talking about film in the meantime, the Arkin brothers talk about movies. And the ladies, I-D-A, yo! I don't think I'll ever get tired of that new opening. Well, I don't think anybody else will either. Uh, hey there, everybody. I'm Tony. I'm Matthew. And tonight we are going to be discussing the great Time After Time, written and directed by the great Nicholas Meyer, who we have as a guest on the show tonight. We're very excited to be talking with him in moments. We in moments right and i'm realizing now that i messed up the cold opening because the cold opening was supposed to be you and me talking and then the title sequence but this is a whole new format so i don't have it down yet well you messed it up didn't you i don't know maybe i did no it was it was definitely me you're gonna Elia, be in trouble with i have to pop my the gang produ the producers are gonna yell at us um, or me anyway. So we're here. We're here. We're actually on now. We're not going to be the cold open happened. So imagine yeah. if you will, we did a cold, cold open and then you heard that song and saw that video. And now we're back. Hello. We're back. <laughs> yes, Welcome we're to the show. Welcome. Um, uh, uh, so briefly, I mean, we have, we have a guest tonight that, it, that is, uh, it's profoundly exciting that we have, well, really any guest at all when you think about it, but the, the quality of, of guests we have tonight is astounding. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's easy to get the guy down the street. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I tried to get him. Uh, he didn't want to do the show. He didn't want to do it. No. He must have seen it once. He, well, or just heard of its reputation. But yeah. um, so I don't want to, you know, banter on about my week, which wasn't any different than last week really so uh, how are you i'm good didn't uh, nothing exciting this week actually the highlight of my week was watching this movie again I, I can safely say that's the same for me so um but i uh i guess you know i do want to say uh i did meet this gentleman our guest uh when i was 16 um i think i may have met him at our house in Chappaqua, he'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I may have met him before they started shooting um, The 7% Solution. Do you want uh, to clarify any of the things you just said? <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> other, I'm not the only person talking with you, no, in essence. Not, other people. All right. Well, our guest, Nicholas Meyer, wrote... The 7% Solution, which was then turned into a wonderful movie with our father and uh, Robert Duval and uh, Nicole Williamson and a host of uh, Lawrence Olivier, uh, who yes. some people may have heard of. Uh, a wonderful movie in which the great Sherlock Holmes teams up with Sigmund Freud to solve a, a mystery. And, One of the uh, mysteries being his own his own psychology, his own psychology, great twist. And, and I had, I had read that book independently of dad doing the film. And then oh, was wow. so excited to find out that dad was going to be doing this movie. Were you behind the scenes movie. going, dad, take this one, take, take it. Cause this is great. No, I think, I think he, I, th I think he was able to make that decision without me. Um, there was only one time that I, I said, uh, 
take this movie, take this movie, you're crazy if you don't take this movie. And he didn't take the movie. His response to me saying, you have to make this movie. Uh, his response was, ah, I don't want to spend uh, three months in the Philippines. Was that Apocalypse and Now? It was uh, The Killing Fields. Oh, well, yeah. you don't want to be in that. <laughs> Who wants to be in that movie? Who wants to be in that movie? Good, good Lord. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's, that's been uh, the, the advice that I've given our mm. father and the, the extent to which it's been taken. Well, so, he made a good call to make this movie. I also remember, uh, Nick, from that time, I was probably 10-ish at the time, nine. Uh, um, yeah, right about there. It was 1976. You know, and uh, it was, you know, that that was a very important movie set for me to be on and, and uh, experience and very memorable time in my life. So I, I remember, Nick as well i don't know if he remembers me i was i was a lot shorter um at the time i remember so many things from that time i remember one afternoon dad saying um we were going to go shopping uh he said i have to have lunch with somebody why don't you meet me outside the such and such restaurant at such and such a time in london uh and then we're going to go shopping or go to a movie or something like that so I'm, I'm waiting outside the restaurant at the appointed time and he comes walking down the steps with an elderly gentleman uh and they get to the bottom of the steps and uh, he says, oh, Matthew, you're here. Uh, Matthew, let me introduce you to somebody. Lord Olivier, this is my son, Matthew. Matthew, this is Lord Olivier. And um, I, I I, literally, I I, I kind of went uh, uh, and start like trying to figure out, do I stick out to shake hands or do I, bow? Do, I do I kneel? Did you, I, I didn't did you know curtsy? what to do. You probably curtsied just out of <laughs> confusion. Just about, yeah, and uh, and and Olivier was was astounded. He just you know stuck out his hand. It's like, oh, nice to meet you, and cheerio, and he, pip pip, and all that. And he he was on his way. But yeah. that was that was. There were uh, some people on that movie. We just named a few of them. Actually, there are there are more. There there's a long list. Um, yeah, but uh, there are also Red, some Vanessa Redgrave. Well, yeah, Joel exactly. Gray. Joel Gray. Yeah. Um, pretty great stuff an amazing cat um but you know we're we're also we're talking about it we're talking about a different film tonight uh movie that came before seven percent solution um, uh no i believe it came right afterwards was it right oh yeah i guess so it was right yeah i have my notes completed it was right after uh and uh one of the most extraordinary like debut directorial uh things i've ever seen well let's bring them on because who wants to hear us babble nobody so ladies and gentlemen please welcome our guest nicholas meyer hey there nicholas. hello thank, thank you so you. much for being here it's a pleasure so far <laughs> it'll get are, better are you are you tired now has it been no no i i'm good i'm good i just at a snack and I'm revived. I'm going to change the format here a little bit so that, yeah, we, we're not quite so cramped there. That's better. Um, well, uh, we both, Tony and I had an opportunity to see this movie again. And I remember seeing this movie when it came out and just adoring it. Um, and loved it as much this time as i did actually i think more because i know more about a little a tiny bit more about film now and there's just so much uh in it uh, that i appreciate it um tony do you want to 
Oh, well, you know, I, I truly, uh, I was obsessed with this movie when it came out. Um, it was probably, uh, I think it was an early um, cable. It was on HBO or, or one of the early cable networks early for me. So I saw it over and over and over again. I was obsessed with it. And um, I, I, it got me kind of going as a kid on various things, including some Sherlock Holmes obsession. And then I was a, very much an Anglophile, partly because of my experiences with 7% Solution. And then with this story, I became a big fan of every actor in this movie afterwards. And um, I, I'd seen it, I don't know, a dozen more, 20 times. Coming back to it wow. has, has been really extraordinary. Thank do you, you have do you have warm feelings about the movie? Um, thinking back on the, on the making of it, yes, it was one of the most wonderful professional experiences of my life. Um, I became friends with. I was introduced to a man named Herb Jaffe, uh, who had originally been a literary agent and then became for a time the head of United Artists and was now an independent producer. And he became uh, sort of my West Coast father. And that family became my West Coast family. And when I <clears throat> wrote the script, which is probably a story we'll get into, um, I, I dropped it off to him. And I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going out to get some Chinese. Do you think you might be interested in producing this? And by the time I was, you know, finished with egg rolls, uh, he he said, "Oh, absolutely!" Wow. And then he um, he introduced me to his son, Stephen Charles Jaffe, and uh, Stephen was I don't know, my age, a little younger. He's a little younger than me, and we've been partners ever since. We've been partners ever since. Wow. Um, Stephen uh, produced. Uh, company business and Star Trek six, which he also was the second unit director of, and he was the second unit director on the day after. So I have a long association. Amazing. With the two of them. Making this movie was like an unfurled red carpet that they were frantically unrolling in front of me. I had no idea the, what they were going through to make this so comfortable and so much fun. And when it was all over and it, and it became a hit, I drew all the wrong lessons from it. I, I said, Oh, making movies is easy. Oh, I uh, see. Yeah. Um, was it, e was it really easy? I mean, I, I'm amazed that, that because in, in my experience, I've never spent a day on a set that was easy. So, uh, I'm just, it's astounding well, to hear. Is a, easy is a relative term. I'm not saying that there was, that there were not a million considerations uh, when you're directing a movie. Uh, you have to have the height of a rhinoceros and the constitution of an ox or something in, in order to get through it because it just doesn't stop. Um, and there's egos and there's weather and there's budgets and there's studios and there are a million variables but um i, I sort of approached it when i was assembling a crew 
I always made the same speech. And I said, I know nothing. So you're going to have to teach me. And you're not going to have, and you're going to have to not mind teaching me. And then you're going to have to not mind if I still want to do it my way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anybody who could withstand this catechism um, was great because I was like surrounded by a support system of people who really wanted to help. And one of the things that I discovered, and I discovered it sort of by accident, was that a lot of people who are in a crew are actually good at other things besides the thing that there's their fiefdom is. When I made movies in Europe, I discovered, you know, if you ask the costumer in an American film, you're looking at the, what were then dailies, you say, well, you know, what'd you think of the scene? And, and they'll go, well, the, the, the seams were all straight. And, but, but the, there might be other things that they have to offer, but they're typically not encouraged to do that. You know, you do that with Stanley Kubrick and he probably fires you or something. But on this movie, we were shooting a scene and we were broke for lunch and a man came down from high up in the gators and he said, uh, you're the writer of this thing as well as the director, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, if you're asking me, which I wasn't, <laughs> um, he's saying the wrong thing there. Wow. That was my next line. I said, wow. What should he, what should he say? And he told me. And what he told me was so much better than the piece of crap line I had just <laughs> shot on Malcolm. And, and, it, and by the way, it wasn't an original line. It was a reprise of an earlier line in the movie. Can you remember? Can you remember of specific lines? Of course I can remember. Anyway, I thought, you're the fucking director. Call everybody back after lunch and shoot his yeah. line, which is your line, which is exactly what we did. And I was thrilled because, number one, that that man was involved enough to want to be, to contribute to it. Yeah. And number two, that he felt comfortable enough to do it. And number three, the movie was got a lot better. Right. Right. The idea was, which was, you know, just brilliant. Well, that's real. That's real leadership, though, to be able to to create that comfortable atmosphere. Well, I think it's for me, it's important. Uh, Film is a collaborative process. And I assume sometimes wrongly, by the way that everybody working on the film is there because they want to be there. And to me, as Orson Welles said, this is the biggest set of electric trains ever kid got to play with. Um, so sure. Um, I love the collaborative part of it. And once, by the way, the word got out, I got all kinds of help, you know, that were outside the purview of, a, of, of what the focus puller did. And, um, I reserved the right to say no. I didn't want suggestions made while I was on the floor while we were shooting. But I was going to get the credit or the blame either way. So if the suggestion was good and you and I was a beginner, why not take it? Um, so I, I took his 
suggestion and I've never regretted it. Well, I, it's a, that's a great story. I, you know, the thing about you uh, is that you gave a specific example of this happening. I've heard people say this before, but I think, you know, uh, you have uh, a, a great humility to actually express like, no, this, this, this event happened with this line and this actual oh, person, you, you know, so the line, when you hear the line, you go, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is fantastic. You know, and later on the focus puller came up to me and said, you know, when he's asking if, uh, if uh, Sherlock Holmes was ever entered in the United States, there's the, got this teletype machine. He said, I can program this to say, no, he wasn't. And I said, Great, let's do that. You know, so so right. I, kept, I kept doing it. Um, what was the line that was repeated? I'll tell you the line. The line, uh, for, for those of you, 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 you poor benighted people who are unfamiliar with time after time, this is a story. Uh, it, it's five movies rolled into one. It's a romance. It's a comedy. It's science fiction, it's a thriller, and it is a rather mordant social commentary. And all these five strands proceed organically from the premise. And I should add right away that I didn't make up this story. I would never have come up with this in a gazillion years. A guy named Carl Alexander, who was at the University of Iowa when I was there, approached me after the 7% solution was on the bestseller list and said, I'm writing a novel that's kind of inspired by your novel. Could you read it and give me your thoughts? He had 65 pages and an outline. And to you know, telescope this part of the thing, I, I read what I thought was absolutely a brilliant concept. I thought it was more a movie than a novel, but I, you know, and I, took me like three months to wake up at four in the morning and go, you're an idiot. Option his book. All right. So I optioned the 65 pages and then I wrote what I thought it should be. Then I gave him the script and I said, here, help yourself. Cause I figure if he got his book published, that would be good. Wow. Anyway, having, you know, explained all the background, the five, ideas, the five strands of the movie proceed from the idea that the young H.G. Wells has not only going to write a novel about the time machine, but has actually invented a time machine, which he hasn't quite worked up the nerve to use before Jack the Ripper escapes from the cops into the future in his time machine. And Jack the Ripper has a kind of a secret identity as a Harley Street surgeon, which is Wells thinks this is his friend. And it and and only in the opening do we do we learn that he wants to. And Wells believing that he has unleashed a homicidal maniac on the socialist utopia, he is so convinced will come in the latter part of the 20th century, feels it incumbent upon him to go after Jack the Ripper. So they wind up in 1979, two Victorian characters running around in a world where the audience sees everything from their point of view, which is to say it's science fiction. Airplanes, miniskirts, it doesn't matter. Rock and roll. 
And yes, there's a girl who gets mixed up in the middle of it. And Wells and the Ripper have very different ideas about what kind of world they've landed in. And as the Ripper says at one point to H.G. Wells, 90 years ago, I was a freak. Today, I'm an amateur. That's great in light, of, in, in light of this past week's events. Such a powerful. He's more timely than ever. Anyway, yeah. at the beginning of the movie, they're playing chess. And the Ripper always wins. He's not a Ripper at that point. He's a Harley Street surgeon. And um, Wells says, how, how, how does he do it? And, and uh, the Ripper says, I know how he thinks. And Wells says, one day I'm going to win. And he says, yes, when you learn how I think. So later, when the cops have cleared out, and the Ripper has disappeared, no one knows where he went. My original line was, you know, the landlady is saying, well, he couldn't have gotten out the front. He couldn't have. And Wells says, wow. And he, he says a line, which I won't tell you till later. And the guy comes down and says, that's the wrong line. And I said, what should the line be? He goes, when you learn how I think. All uh, right. That's so much better. It's so much better. So we went and filmed that. And my line was something like, under my very nose. <laughs> okay. Which, you given know that which, given Malcolm's nose, was a particularly unfelicitous. <laughs> under my very nose. You know, it was just totally banal, stupid. And when you learn how I think, is so much better. Now, now I, have, I have a question. This was your first outing as a director. Um, and what were your, what were your influences and were, were you conscious of, of picking and choosing influences that you wanted to pay homage to or, or, or express in this film? Because in the opening, there was something that struck me so strongly and I want to, I want to know if I'm on the right track with it. Do you want to lead with that? Or? No, I want to. I want to. I want to hear from you first, so I don't embarrass. So I don't humiliate myself. Well, first of all, I I have to say that asking people about their influences is almost a, a, a problematic undertaking for the simple reason that I think a lot of people may not be consciously aware of what is influencing them half the time. They may also want to present themselves in a certain light. You might want to say, oh, yes, I was terribly influenced by the films of uh, Akira Kurosawa, whereas it was really more like Mr. Magoo. Um, but that doesn't sound so cool. Or, as I say, there may be influences of which you are unaware that you have absorbed, you know, I can tell well, I know, you. I know that's, I know that's true because one time dad had an interview with somebody and after, after the interview, I said to him, how was the interview? And he said, ah, I was really stupid. It was the guy was asking me all kinds of stupid questions. And I said, like what? And he said, Oh, he was, he was talking about the kinds of roles I take. And I, I don't, 
and the, the kinds of characters I play, I don't play a particular kind of character. That's, that's a load of crap. And I said, you do play a particular kind of character. And he said, I do. He said, yeah, I said, you do. And he said, what is that? And I said, you play the guy who everybody think is, thinks is crazy because you're the only sane person in a crazy world. And it, he stopped for a second. He was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess I do play that guy all the time. He's Yosarian. Yeah. But so that's to your point that the influences and the things that he's that are driving him are are somewhat subconscious. So, first of all, I think that a lot of influences and probably a lot of my influences are subconscious. And I've got to also prune what might sound cool or impressive to cite, which may not be true, but may simply sound good. The one movie influence that I was definitely conscious of was a movie I've seen once in my life and can barely remember. I saw it at the University of Iowa. It's by Jean-Luc Godard. It was called Alphaville. Mm -hmm. And Alphaville is a sci-fi story in which everything is the same as now, except it all has sci-fi names. So somebody says, you know, hand me that communicator, and they hand him a book. Um, so it's just different labels for things. And when I read Carl's 65 pages and thought, well, this is an essentially, this is a visual idea more than it is, to my way of thinking, a literary idea. This is two guys in Victorian outfits running around modern day, wherever we put it. That shouldn't be too expensive. You know, P.S. Maybe they'll let me direct it if I tie it, tie my directing to selling the the script. So Alphaville, which starred an American actor named Eddie Constantine, who made a lot of films in in France. Um, I don't remember the movie. I just remember that conceit. Within that, you know, I'm sure I absorbed or recapped a lot of other movies and a lot of books and so forth. I'll give you another influence, which is, which was the time machine, the actual time machine in the movie. And I think you showed it. You have, I think a, we can see a photograph of that there. Yeah, there it is. Okay. So beautiful. When I, it was designed by a man named Ed Carfagno, who was a very well-known production designer. Um, and when I was a kid, I was a big Jules Verne fan. Uh, I suppose I, I still am. But when I was, I don't know how old it was, 1954, they released the Walt Disney, what I still think is the best movie Walt Disney ever made, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, with James Mason as the best Nemo. Oh, yeah. Kirk Douglas, Peter Lorre. Um, and, um, uh, uh, um, Paul Lukash as Professor Aranax. And that movie was about a submarine called the Nautilus, which is mistaken for a sea monster. And I saw that movie so many times. 
I think they dumped me in the movie theater and forgot about me for three days. And at the end of that time, I had bonded with the Nautilus as the mother ship. The Nautilus in that movie was designed by a man who never got credit for it. His name was Harper Goff, G-O-F-F. And he went on to design the Vikings, and he did get credit for the Vikings. And he said to Walt Disney, you know, in the novel, Verne describes the Nautilus as looking like a cigar. No one's going to want to look at a cigar, like a cigar for two hours in a movie. On the other hand, it is mistaken for a sea monster. Let me design something that tries to combine those things. So he created the Nautilus, this iconic piece of steampunk, maybe the first steampunk. And I just loved that. I wanted to live inside it. So when it came time to design my time machine, I showed the Nautilus to Ed Carfagno and I said, give me something that looks like this. So that's another influence. I have to say, you know, it's... It's such a. It's got so many things I love about it. This movie, and that the the fans of this movie I know are legion. But one of the things I think that I think is a magic act that you pull off that I haven't really necessarily heard discussed is that I never, for one second, don't believe that H.G. Wells built a time machine in his basement. Like it, you. It's it it is in any other movie something I think I'd stop and go wait wait a minute well hold on a second he how did he do it wait, 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 like let's see a little more of that and you created a, 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 a such an immediate tone for this film the minute it starts and the minute then we get into that ch that chamber where they're playing chess and talking and these these elegant men are discussing you 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 managed to create a world where. I don't question it for a second. And I think that's kind of um, a real testimony to, to the, the assurance of, of tone that you had, which to me is the magic act of what you did as a first time director, having done a little bit myself, I know how that's the hard part really, you know, I mean, you just managed to create a flavor that, and it lasts through the whole movie. So. Uh, well, thank you. You know, I, I guess somebody, I, I was at a film festival recently and somebody was discussing my films and I was kind of surprised and interested to hear them talk about how heavy they are on the characters, how, how the, what they, what this man called a kind of humanistic theme yes. running through it. And so I guess I always approached all of these people, all, no matter what I'm writing about, as, as if they were real people, not as though they were superheroes or archetypes or comic books or camp. Um, you know, having said that, I don't know why the movie works as well as it does. I think movies are like soufflés. Mm. They either rise or they don't, and you never quite know why. And the fact that I've made a number of movies that seem to have stood the test of time and they last i've also made a couple of stinkers and if there were a tried and true formula i guess you know they'd all 
be souffles that rose. Sure. I think part of part of what makes this all work for me, though, um, is in terms of the tone that Tony was talking about. It harkens back to me to, um, in terms of the the science that's discussed at the beginning that we buy. The, the way it's presented is very much like in the Frankenstein movies. You know, we did this and we did that, and it's this new science we've discovered, and it works. And we just buy it because we're back in that time. We're not looking at it through the scientific eyes that we'd have today. We're looking at it through through the, the Victorian, Edwardian view of of science and this idea that new things are being discovered and anything is possible and and somewhat related to that is that the beginning of the movie to me felt when, when it started and this is what i was wondering partly if it was a conscious choice tony and i had just a couple of months ago done a run of hammer horror movies and the beginning of the movie in terms of the the color palette, the titles, the music, I thought, oh my God, it's, it's a hammer. We're back in that world. It's a hammer horror. And was that a conscious um, emulation of, of that style for the very beginning to bring us into that old world? I would say semi-conscious. I wouldn't say I was... That's not to say that the movie is a hammer horror film no, at no, all. I understand, I understand what you're saying. Um, I was inventing a Victorian world, and perhaps my view of that world was, you should pardon the pun, colored by the hammer movies. Um, but I wasn't, I never thought about it. I think I never thought about it. At the, at the time, I just thought this was a scary, fog-bound London street, you know, some, right. somehow in the East End and yet close enough to where Wells lived. Right, yeah. Part of it was. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't want to show any actual violence in the movie. Um, this is part of a larger theory which is that works of art, with the exception of movies, tend to work best when they leave things out. Paintings don't move. Music has no intellectual content. Words are just code on a page. In each of these cases, it is the imaginative participation of the viewer, the listener, the reader, that supplies the missing ingredient. Movies alone have the hideous capacity to do everything for you. And in doing so, they lock you out. We call it eye candy, but you know, candy is not good for you. Um, you're, you're talking to the man who fell asleep in both versions of Blade Runner. I just, I, the movie was, every frame was so perfect that I, I didn't, my imagination had nothing to contribute. And horror movies understand this very well, going back to Hammer for a moment, when you see somebody staring at the camera and their eyes widen in fear, and you don't know what it is they're seeing, that's cool. Then you're drawn in. 
And I remember watching the Woody Allen movie Manhattan, and they're at the Museum of Modern Art, and they see somebody that she knows behind a panel uh, of paintings, and you can't, and they're saying, "My God, what are you doing here? This is so amazing!" And you're going, "Who is it? Who is it? Who?" Is it? He he took his time before the guy steps out from behind that that pa panel, and your imagination has been in, evoked. Once I see the guy get shot or stabbed, I know it's hamburger meat. I know it's ketchup or whatever it is. And in that sense, I go, oh, this is pretend. But if you don't show it, if you just hear the rip of a knife going through something and her eyes start to widen, Mm. Give you another influence. I think I, we have that clip. I think we have that clip. Actually, do we have? Oh, that? do we? If we have it, let's take a look. I think if you we have briefly that clip of the the first uh, the first. That's uh, lovely. That was oh, it. Just, yeah. Um, we all. It also the, what you're talking about also relates to one of my favorite shots in the movie, the uh, door handle cam. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I had them build a gigantic doorknob. How big was it? Oh, it was like this. <laughs> it just blew my mind, that shot. I was like, I can't believe he's put in a door POV. I, it's interesting because because I hadn't directed a movie, I had directed a lot of plays. and I, had that was, I was going to ask you that. I, yeah, I worked with actors. I tried to be an actor, and I had directed a lot of radio plays. I directed a play a week on the radio. And so that part I was very confident about. The camera, much less so. So I started off shooting things very conventionally. And then as we got further and deeper into it, I started to get bolder in my choices. And the doorknob, you know, Paul I... Lohman, who, who shot Nashville, among other things, looked at that thing and he said, Meyer, you go too far. Uh, oh, I don't think so at all. Not at all. I, not at all. I, I adore that. I, I think we were all, you know, pleasantly thrilled by sort of the way this turned out. Again, like a souffle, and you go, my God, this is five movies rolled into one, and, and they seamlessly kind of flow into each other, and it's sort of idiot's luck, but but everybody who worked on it, I think without exception, wanted to be working on it, really liked it, um, and was sort of in love with the script. And, and I think the script is probably way stronger than my direction, because I, you know, barely knew what I was doing. But as long as the performances were good, and the picture was in focus, the screenplay kind of did the rest. The other thing I want to mention, because you alluded to it, was the music. Ah. The music is was by a Hungarian composer named Miklos Roja, who wrote at least 100 movies. His career, once he came to America during the war, was almost exclusively at MGM. He wrote Knights of the Round Table. He, he wrote El Cid, The Asphalt Jungle, King of Kings, Ivanhoe, 
uh, Plymouth Adventure, Brute Force. It was went on and on and on. Did Warner Brothers movies too for Mark Hellinger. And he wrote The Thief of Baghdad, the one with Sabu. Oh my God. It's one of my dad's, our dad's favorite movies. Yeah. We were raised on that movie. Yep. Well, that's the same composer. That's Mickey. <clears throat> and when it came time to choose a composer for the film, I said, gee, this is about a 19th century man wandering around in the late 20th century. I think the music should reflect his point of view. And any rock and roll that you hear should be perceived as another sound effect. So the, the music is sort of the Wells thing. And I was thinking, so it's going to be a symphonic score. And it should be somebody who has a kind of gift for fantasy to do that time travel thing. And we can talk about the, the way I went about the time travel thing, because that's another... Sort of One of my favorite things in the movie I love, yeah. It's... Well, um, basically, I didn't think I knew enough, A, to compete with George Pal's time travel sequences in the time machine. And also, if I did, it would be just the same, even if it was kind of anywhere near as visiting. And... Um, so I thought, what if I could turn the movie theater into a radio? Because no one knows what time travel is. But you can certainly recognize sounds. What about Enrico Caruso singing, a horse clip-clop, an air raid siren, uh, the Rolling Stones, whatever. So I thought, OK. We just need a series of flashing lights and a kind of forward motion, forward momentum kind of thing that you're sort of moving. And then put in all these different voices and sound effects that are getting you to use your imagination to feel that you are traveling through time as you overhear these snippets. And so that's how that evolved, and that's how I wound up casting uh, Miklos Roja uh, to write the, the music, because he, he lent it that whole Victorian, fantastic uh, musical accompaniment. It's a great, great score. I mean, it truly is. I, I, I was just watching the film again with some of the director's commentary that you've done on the DVD and uh, you know, the hearing the music again, uh, I, I was really struck. I think it's, it's one of his best scores too. I mean, it's, it's really fantastic stuff. He's pretty, you know, pretty consistent. Mickey. You're very, you know, you're, you're, I think you're uh, very, um, maybe a little too humble about the visual style of the movie. I really like, I really think it is got an elegant and spare style. And it reminds me of some of my favorite filmmakers like, you know, Howard Hawks, who notoriously kept it very simple and very, you know, uh, kind of, you know, not too complicated, deceptively so. And I think, you know, you made a reference to not, uh, one of the things you said in the commentary anyway, was that you felt maybe you didn't get enough coverage that you could have had more close-ups or insert shots. 
couple never, of places. A couple of places. I, I I don't know if I thought that or not. I I I I didn't miss them when I saw the movie. Um, when I heard you mention it, I thought, okay, well, maybe if you're worried about reinforcing detail, but something about shooting without a lot of coverage like that made me so assured that we were just on this ride together, that there was no, there wasn't any patronizing to the audience. You know, you, you really trusted us to follow this thing on its, on its, um, on its very straight ahead visual level. And that was, I really appreciated that so much this time because of how movies like this have gotten so bogged down in the, not just the visual flourish, but, or the CGI effects, but in the description of the time travel, for instance, or in the mechanics of that being so the point and watching this film that looked like it could have been, you know, it, it, it it could have been shot the same day that bullet was shot very straight ahead very much like no this is modern day we're not there's there's no ornateness to it i think it sells the fantasy so much you know well i'll only interject number one that artists are not the best judges of their own work for sure and what's more artists lose all proprietary authority over their creations when they're finished. Artists are people who put messages in bottles and once it's finished, you throw the bottle out there somewhere and hope that somebody finds it and opens it up and sees what's inside. But you're not gonna be there when it happens. Right. Looking over their shoulder and saying, no, that's not gum, that's gun. You know, I wish I'd gotten <laughs> of it, whatever. Right. Um, right. You just sort of hope for the best. So I am, I am not, I'm partial to the movie and certainly my partiality has been reinforced by the world's affection for the film. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's fair to say that for directors and maybe others, watching your movie is like looking at sort of home movies of your life. Mm. There are things that you, you know, I, I watched David Lean being interviewed uh, when I lived in London and they were talking about the end of the bridge on the river Kwai and the interviewer said, Oh, I love that moment when the Colonel Nicholson's uh, the doctor after the end was says madness. Right. Madness. And David Lean says, I hate that moment. And we're all going, <laughs> okay. What? And he says, Yes, why do, you, why do you hate the moment? And he says, because the moment we finished the close-up of James Donald saying his line, Sam Spiegel put him on a plane out of Salon back to London, and it's a double who walks away from the camera. And David Lean didn't like the way the double swung his arms. Wow. Wow. Example number two. Um... I get to meet Paul Henry. I Ooh, met Paul that's heavy. It got heavier. Um, we're standing on Wilshire Boulevard outside the Academy Theater. Someone introduces me and I, I say, Mr. Henry, <clears throat> I've loved you in a million movies. I've got to tell you, when you tell the band to play La Marseillaise, I fall to pieces. 
and he goes, I hate that moment. <laughs> and, wow. And I go, what? <laughs> oh, my God. He says, I said, well, why, why do you hate the moment? And he said, because the moment I tell them to play La Marseillaise, the band all goes like this. And I say to Cortez, the director, I said, what, what are they looking at? He says, oh, we'll cut to a shot of Rick on the stairs, giving him the high sign, it's okay to play. And Paul Henry getting angrier and angrier in the afternoon sunshine on Wilshire Boulevard says, wait a minute, I'm Victor Laszlo. I'm leader of the resistance in the free world, and I can't get the band at the, <laughs> in the saloon at the ass end of nowhere to play the Marseillaise without the barking. Oh, that's ridiculous. Great. That's and so funny. Says, yeah, but then, you know, Bogey doesn't have anything to do with this. It's not my problem whether Bogey has anything to do with the scene. You know, and I'm, I'm like hoping for an earthquake. Wow. Oh, my really. God. Those are great examples, you know, because they are they are so uh, they're just so it shows you how personal this stuff is. And you okay, just well, can't. Well, at the risk of incurring your wrath, then. Uh, can I have the temerity to pull up some of my favorite moments of the film and ask you well, why you why you hate them? Or, or not as the case may be. Or not as the case may be. Um because what, what my, and my favorite moments in the in the movie they they a lot of them revolve around i feel like this movie has such an essential belief in and you say it clearly in love and in humanity as being the reason to go on but there's there's this great moment where um where uh Malcolm McDowell where H.G. Wells says, play, play the clip, Elia, you know the one I'm talking about. Malcolm McDowell says his line and Mary Steenburgen replies with, with something else. Every age is the same. Oh, that was only part of it. Every age is the same. It's only love that makes any of them bearable. Okay, but then there's another clip where she has the first man to raise a fist is the man who's run out of ideas. I love you. So good. The, the fact that he's he's being philosophical and so serious and her response is I love you <laughs> just encapsulated Again, this is just, you know, my opinion, but I think she loves the man who believes that. Yeah. First man to raise a fist is the man who has run out of ideas. I don't know where I heard that, but it stuck with me. And then the moment at the end that is throughout the movie, it seems to me that 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 uh, that Dr. Stevenson, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper, devolves, you know, as he finds his element, he's in this new world, which is the world that he belongs in he he decompensates he's he falls apart he's he's very together at the beginning um yes he is and he 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 decompensates throughout the whole movie and then in the last moment his last moment he seems unless i'm misinterpreting it he regains his humanity well two things are happening one is that there's another influence that's from the third man. 
and it's it's the moment where Harry Lyme realizes in his endless chase through the sewers of Vienna that he's reached the end of the line and he's going to be shot. And he gives a little nod to Holly Martins to shoot him. It's a tiny little nod. And I lifted that tiny little nod and I gave it to Jack the Ripper at the end. And that was an outgrowth of an earlier moment in the same scene, which we were shooting on a soundstage. And David Warner, who plays the Ripper and Dr. Stevenson, said to me, I'm confused. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to play this final confrontation with Wells. And I don't know where I got this from, but I just said, you're exhausted. And he goes, oh, 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 stop. Don't say anymore. I know what to do. And that's where the exhaustion came from. And that's where the nod followed on that. It's a brilliant direction, you know. I mean, I, for anybody out there listening and thinking about direction and directing actors in particular, which is, I don't even know if people do that anymore or if we're well, allowed to. But, but you know, you you know, one of one of the things I took away from this uh, in this viewing was just, you know, your touch with actors here. Um, every single role is 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 perfectly detailed just enough to get them to tell story and to create a believable moment in a character. I think everybody has every actor in this is given an opportunity to do something fun or individualistic. And, you know, I, I heard you in the director's commentary say that note about play exhaustion, you know, that simple, concise thing really made that ending performance uh that 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 ending scene of his incredible on multiple levels and you got there very quickly and it reminded me of something that he was also doing in the movie and i don't know if it was on purpose or if you worked with him to get there or how david warner works he's a favorite of mine i've always really thought he's you know one of the best actors for me um but he does something in it to make that character even more terrifying than he would be without this. And I sense from him a, a little bit of self-awareness and almost fear of himself. Or there's an aspect of this journey that he's on, this dark journey that he's on, that seems to be almost uh, that he's aware that it's out of his control. And that makes him excited but nervous. There's that and there's a weird smile thing he does with a couple of his victims where he's shy with them or appears like like a little boy. He he smiles at this dancer who comes up to him at the nightclub and it's the most chilling thing and it's psychologically deep. And um, I'm wondering if if this is resonating with you, if you saw him do this, if this was a uh, conscious. Well, I have a good memory, but it's not a perfect memory, and I've found that out the hard way a couple of times. Um, what I remember was that the Ripper carries a watch, and the watch plays a little tune, which I also chose. It's part of the Chanson d'Auvergne series, which has been sung by a million sopranos. And it's a little sort of kind of a lilting lullaby it was the most innocent sounding 
thing. Yeah, and it's haunting in the in the context. Yeah, very, very, very innocent sounding. And the watch has a picture of a woman in it, and that woman is clearly from a previous generation. Mm -hmm. My mother was rather an atrocious woman in her way, but her many failings did not include raising mentally deficient. <laughs> That's a great line. Yeah. <laughs> um, my mom didn't raise no stupid children. Yeah. Um, and somehow I think for David, the watch, the tune, the image, and his clearly orgasmic release after he's killed the, the first prostitute, um, he's in the grip of some kind of sexual mania that can only be fulfilled one way. And all the rest leading up to it, whatever tentativeness, all that all came from David to, to my recollection. Mm -hmm. Interesting about that, you know, that, that watch is so powerful, that image of the of the woman who we assume is would be his mother. It looks like that would be, uh, you know, who would be from another earlier time. It's like this tiny little uh, Hitchcock mom that, that is just in a photograph, but it really does have this layered effect. And I remember being really, um, really impacted by that depiction of of evil. I hadn't I knew about the Ripper. I'd heard about him, I guess. But as a kid, when I saw the movie the first time, it was uh, it was really the first time. And you may or may not love this part about the movie because it actually was a doorway for me to love kind of horror movies and 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 other stuff, which I, I've gotten a lot out of. And I have to say, I your approach to it, I, I admire very much. I love the lack of of gore here. I love the lack of it. I also think that when you use it, though, it has tremendous impact because there are a couple of things you show here that are pretty shocking very briefly the, the yes. blood the blood tear is is very well that was another that was the other influence um i was crazy about this television series called i claudius Oh, I remember that. Yeah. With Derek, with Derek Jacoby. As who Claudia. you wanted, who you initially wanted to play. Yeah. HGL. Except nobody Warner Brothers had ever seen I, Claudia, so they didn't right. know who Derek Jacoby was. Anyway, there's a moment in I, Claudius, the only time I've ever screamed in front of a television set, where the Empress Messalina gets her head chopped off. And this soldier yanks her up by the hair and the his sword arm goes back and the camera spins around. Oh, okay. And, that's, and we're out. And I took that and then I added the tear, the blood tear. Um, the whole history of art, any kind of art, as near as I can figure out, is a history of cut and paste. You add to it. Michael Chabon says that all fiction is fan fiction. What is hmm. the Odyssey? The Odyssey is a spin-off from the Iliad. Right. right. And you, people have been adding and spinning. And, and, and that's why I hate the term cultural appropriation or cultural misappropriation. Everything is an appropriation. Right. It just is. And getting mad at, you know, George Gershwin for writing Porgy and Bess is silly. Or William Styron for writing The Confessions of Nat Turner is silly and wrong. And, you know, how dare Flaubert write Madame B 
ovary. How dare you try to write a, a woman? You know, it's ridiculous. All art is cut and paste. The way that you appropriated though here is so unique. Um, I remember I remember feeling that these movies were, even at the time, were a kind of a new, the new face of, of fantasy. I remember, and I was a little young to see this movie, I think when I saw, you know, I mean, uh, I really felt like, oh, between this and then, you know, 7% of course had the, had a similar magic quality to it where you're just, your head explodes just because the ideas are just so, uh, so fun, so followable. I wanted to, you would you want to see these characters in this journey, no matter what. And, um, I don't know where Matthew went. I just, I apparently disgusted him. I said something that he didn't like, but um, you went to find the picture of the Nautilus that somebody that they had found. I'm curious. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. So oh, now, that's if you, great. you put that back to back with the time machine, you'll you'll see the, the yeah, the slight resemblance. It's slight, just but, beautiful. How how involved were you? I mean, did you did you give them some adjectives and told them watch Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, or did you go through a lot of drafts of drawings and? No, I and, and, well, no, I I began by by saying look at the at the right. models from the movie, and then you know I'm I don't remember the details, but I'm sure we riffed on on what he had seen, and he showed me some sketches and so forth. Um. I, I love the use of the, uh, I think it's probably my favorite in any movie, the use of, of the uh, art expo in, in San Francisco, the, the location. Um, it, it, because it's one of the only movies I think that thematically it's been used properly. Otherwise, it's just this gorgeous backdrop. We but there's something. Have, we, we want, I wanted to have fog at the end so that the movie oh. closed with fog. Okay. But there was too much wind, and it was you couldn't just, it couldn't stay in there, right? Couldn't stay there, yeah. There's something about you know, I mean, we've seen it in a lot of cop movies and a lot of, and it moved out San Francisco. It's there, but you you know, having this uh, the site of the World's Fair, which is all about the future, and him, you know, I guess H. G. Wells was born right around or would have been alive for the first World's Fair, right? It was like 1850s, oh, yeah. I yeah. So he would have known about it, but the idea that this this kind of architectural representation of of the future and time travel, I just I just love that detail about it. Um, how uh, now? I'd love to talk about your a couple of other things. I'd like to talk about a movie that I just heard about and found a little bit of, uh, which is called "The Invasion of the Bee Women." Was this your first screenplay? And and if so, how how did you make the jump from theater to to working in like fantasy sci-fi movies? That's such an interesting jump. Well, this was a, an extremely disagreeable experience, and one which I tend not to care to. Discuss. Oh, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to uh, bring it up. Then I didn't mean to. The only thing I will say about it, because it. it I think it got pretty ruined, was that the producers said to me, we want to make a horror movie in which the men and not the women for a change are victims. And I said, great. Mm -hmm. 
know, I, I just thought, oh, what a good thing. And then I came up with a movie which I called The Honey Factor. Okay. And you can see how much more elegant. It okay. Was. I can see why you're mad. I now I can see why you're upset. I now I can see why you're upset. Great. I'll just kill myself. <laughs> um. So my question really wasn't about that film so much as as if your background was in theater uh, initially. Did you when did you know that you wanted to go into into making films uh, in addition to I mean, being in theater first, and writing novels? As I said, I was a Jules Verne fan, and for my eleventh birthday, my father took me to the Rivoli Theater to see. The Mike Todd around the world in 80 days. Okay. Oh. My life changed. I was Saul of Tarsus, struck blind on the road to Damascus. And there was a program that you could buy that came with the movie. $2. I still have it. It's out of reach or I'd show it to you. And it's all about the making of around the world in 80 days. And there was an article in it. This was Mike Todd's first, as and it turned out his only movie as a film producer. And the article was called, You Too Can Make a Motion Picture. No Previous Experience Necessary. Wow. Years old, and I thought, yes, I can make a motion picture. No previous experience necessary. Pop, would you help me? We have an 8mm wind-up Revere camera. I want to make... A movie and the movie I wanted to make, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, was the movie I had just seen. <laughs> I was going to be Phileas Fogg. My best friend, who grew up to edit my movies, was Passepartout. And we spent weekends and school vacations and summer holidays making wow. this movie. So I was I was a filmmaker from the from the get go. I just had never directed a. 35 millimeter feature. My first film when I was nine years old, right around when 7% happened, was a remake of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, in which I played the hunchback. So I feel Quasimodo. you. I feel you there. Yeah. I was bit by the same, by that same bug. And he was wonderful, I might add. Please tell me more. Um, the, my theory is that childhood experiences whether of events or people or art tend to imprint themselves with the most force on people growing up. You, you never forget for some people it's Bambi for other people it's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or whatever it is. For me, it was 20,000 leagues under the sea and then around the world in 80 days. That sealed my fate. Plus the fact that once I learned how to read, I couldn't stop. The Three Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, Edgar Allan, I just bleh, couldn't get enough and still can't. I think Cervantes was the last guy who could claim to have read every book. Huh. It was said that if he would see a scrap of paper on the street, he had to bend down. <laughs> wow. So... Wow. I'm curious. You, you're born in New York City. You're from New York. Did you get the theater bug uh, uh, early, or was that in in college? Or um... no, I, uh, New York post-war when I grew up, 
was a fairy tale place for a middle class family. There used to be middle class people. My dad was a doctor. I got taken to the ballet. I got taken to the opera. I got taken to musicals. I got taken to theater. What was the result? I'm an opera, ballet, musical, theater fool. I'm an right. opera fool. I just soaked it all up. I thought, this is great. So we're a couple of uh, silly questions and, or silly questions and or things that I noticed. Um, there's one shot. You, you mentioned that it takes place in the San Francisco of Bullets or Tony mentioned that there's one shot in the taxi cab. It's a steal. It's right out of, it's exactly from bullet. Steve Jaffe, my producer shot it. Okay. And, and that was intentional. That's great to know. Also the Sherlock Holmes of, of course brought up to me, of course, that you had just made 7% solution. So the, the references to Sherlock Holmes seemed very apt. I, can I just I say also? Logically apt. He, it never occurred to him that Sherlock Holmes. That's what, that's what made me laugh. Years. That made me laugh so hard that he'd think, of course, who would know Sherlock Holmes? Right. I just love that. And then also, um, we had been in San Francisco just a few years before this was shot for Freebie and the Bean. And there's a gunfight between those elevators in the Hyatt Hotel in Freebie and the Bean. Oh, there is? Yeah, where they're, they're, the two elevators are going at the same time and they're they're shooting at each other in the elevator. Oh, my God, I had no idea. Yeah, so I, I didn't know if that was uh, intentional. No, what, what, what happened was when they showed me that hotel, the, 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 the Hyatt Hotel on Drum Street, which won all these architectural prizes. I said, gee, this looks exactly like the huge set in that gigantic British movie, The Shape of Things to Come. Uh-huh. Wells, if you look at it, you look at the, mm. that set, it looks like the Hyatt. And the lady showing me around said, well, it's interesting you say that because that was the architect's favorite movie. Oh, wow. So wow. It really was. It really was an H.G. Wells hotel. That's incredible. That's that's crazy. That is crazy. I also want to give a shout out to um, an actor who I've heard dad talk about so much. And uh, I've never known how to pronounce his name when I see it. Dad always pronounced it Joe Mahar. Um, it oh looks like God, it's Joe Mayer. Or, uh, yeah. But he's spectacular in this. You gentlemen will accompany me. I'll see that you all reach your home safely. Yes, it's one just wonderful. Dad, Dad worked with him in a play called A uh, with Dustin Hoffman, and, also, and Mom as well. I want to give a sh- while we're talking about it, s- small roles in this. A shout out to Charles Chiaffi, who plays the detective, who is just fantastic. I think yeah. in this small role, your I part when him, we recast. I saw him in Clute, and I wanted to. Of course, right. Wow. That's who I, that's who I'm playing when yeah, we recast. You, we, we we always recast the movies, Nick Nicholas. We we at the end of it, Matthew and I go, well, if we were doing it today, who would be in it? And uh, that's Matthew. We cast ourselves, and Matthew would get to play the detective. He'd get to play Chiaffi. Okay. That's just I my think, one man's opinion. I think you'd be the cab driver. No, I know exactly who I am. I'm who, the guy. Who? I'm the guy standing in front of him at the line of McDonald's. 
It's <laughs> like I'd like a cheeseburger, please. That's my that's my part, uh, which I'm very grateful to have. Um, I want to just go through a couple of things that I just I, I usually Matthew and I just yell things that we love about the movie at each other, and I, I'd like to do that while you're on the air, just because yeah. there's so many. Um, I I love. I just love uh, Colt's Mall Rams as a headline that confuses him in the future. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of a more appropriate confusing headline. Uh, his reaction to fries being palm frites. I could watch that every day of my life. I think it's fantastic. Um, the scene in the hotel between the two of them uh, when they meet uh, is just gold. It is fantastic. And subtle stuff going on there. When David Warner is reclining on that gory-looking bedspread, it is so chilling. So, yeah, there's some touches there visually that are subtle and great. Spoon in the garbage disposal? Whose idea was that? Was that yours or Malcolm's? Don't remember. It could very well have been Malcolm's, but... Uh, great. We That's had to a great for it, for sure. Her wine glass into the pasta? Yeah, nobody ever notices that. Good. Oh, it's great. Um, you know, it's interesting. There were things I had to cut out of this movie because I didn't film them right. Some of which wound up in Star Trek VI. Uh, really? Not six. Four. You mean as, as gags that you were able to do later? Okay. Yeah, um, because it's basically the same story. In Star Trek Four is another time travel story. Yeah, right. And I, I said, do they have to go to San Francisco? I, I did time travel. It's, it's the same, the same place, yeah. So I would recycle stuff. Um, you mentioned something else that brought back a memory. It wasn't the garbage. Oh, it was the Mickey Mouse phone. Oh, okay, yeah. So Mary says to me, she would never have this phone. This phone is terrible. Her character would never have it. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I'm, it's all I can do to get through the day. And I said, well, listen, what can I tell you? I need the phone. It's, it's, it's perfect for the, you know. So it meant something to you thematically. You needed it there for. Well, it was just this silly anachronistic thing. That was yeah. Completely befuddle him. And she kind of stomped off. And then she came back a few minutes later and she said, I'll make it work for you. And so when, when the phone rings and he goes, what's that? And she goes to pick it up and she goes, the phone, she goes, Ted's idea. Uh, <laughs> so that was her. That was her after a day of thinking about it. That's great. That's how she made Ted, it work. That's what a great. wonderful performance. Voice, guys. Okay. okay. I'll just, I'll just hit you with a couple of things that I adored. The spinning shadow of the lamp when he's dejected and the time machine is gone and he doesn't know what to do. And the lamp that the, he sees the shadow on the floor moving because the, of the lamp first. Uh, I love that. I love the moment with the glasses where his glasses oh, are broken. Yes. And he realizes he can get he his own glasses his... out of the desk. Oh, it's my, it's just the greatest. The, le the, the lesson. The way that came about, because I have a daughter who's about to direct the movie, and she's talking about cutting the, 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 the tediousness of cutting the budget. And I said, it can be fun. 
if you look for ways to skin the cat. So when I was writing the movie and making the movie, I thought we've got Wells in his apartment and we've got a museum exhibit in London. That's a, these are lots of sets. And I thought, wouldn't it be, hey, wait, what if we just transplanted everything from his so London smart. apartment and turned it into the museum exhibit? And wouldn't it be hey, cool he forgot something at home? Yeah. That he was able to retrieve from the, you know, so that that's how that came about. It's so delightful. Good. I I love that moment. And also the endless foot chase back and forth on the bridges. With, a, Where, with David Warner who couldn't run. Really? So, oh. Did he have broken ankles or something? I He had. Yeah, he, yeah, he had. That's a long, a long story, but anyway, yeah, no, he couldn't. Run. But they weren't freshly broken ankles. I mean, he, no, no. they were. It was an old injury, I'm assuming, because yeah. he was running a little bit. I was, yeah. Well, I, we used doubles. We used all kind of things, but you know, again, I was just, I was just trying to get through it. Well, what a wonderful job! Listen, I don't. We don't want to take up any more of your time. Your voices, yes. Um, we could clearly talk about this movie for yeah. a much longer time. The, the feeling is genuine, Nicholas, and the feeling for other other stuff you've done is just as genuine. So, this is I'm just part of why we believe you. And I and I am not BSing when I say that listening to your enthusiasm and the specificity with which you you know cite things from the movie is enormously touching and meaningful to me. I know I'm not alone when artists, I said, throw bottles out there. You don't mm. know who's going to find, you don't know what they're going to make of it. And so when people write me letters or whatever, something like this, to say that it makes my day doesn't really quite cover it. Well, um, that's uh, it's a great, that's a, uh amazing to hear you say that I, I it's very genuine from both of us and you know before you go i also want to just say that you know you may not have known that you made an impact on me personally as well because i was when i when i was on the set for seven percent solution i was a little kid you know 10 years old or so i was already wanted to be a filmmaker i, I already wanted to do this and be a storyteller and do i didn't know how yet but you were one of the first people who i was old enough to be aware of as a young person. So you were young then, but older than me, but I could, I looked up to you uh, then as somebody who was like, I want to do, I want to do kind of what he's doing. I, I couldn't even put it together, but because you were nice to me and because you didn't patronize me as a little kid, as some people do on, on movie sets, it meant a lot. And um, so I just, I'm very happy to have an opportunity to tell you much later that you, you made a big impact on me. And I want to echo, I want to echo that as well, that, you know, there have been uh, Tony and I growing up on sets with that. There, there have been a, a, a small handful of people uh, who I encountered in my youth and growing up with dad on sets who I just always remembered as not only people whose work I admired, but who I remembered as being kind um, to to me, to us back then, and and treating us like people rather than as the son of the 
the guy they were working with who was hanging around. And you were one of those people who just made a tremendous impression on me back then. Well, you were my playmate. We were like, you know, I was like such a kid on this movie. You were the closest person I could talk to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember one particular night in Vienna all night and they, they took out this big pot and made glugwein. Do you remember that night? The, the hot wine for the spiced wine for the crew on a on a cold night in Vienna. I've never forgotten that evening. I cast two roles in that movie. I cast Robert Duval. Oh wow. brilliant. Wow. Brilliant. And I, cast, and I cast your dad. Did you really? Wow. Yeah, that was my idea. Wow. Those that's incredible. Because Duval is not, I, I don't, that's not an obvious one, but so brilliant. Such a well, great when choice. I heard that he wanted to play the role, I went ballistic because I just thought, I'm so trying to get away from Nigel Bruce. I, I basically hate all Sherlock Holmes movies with one or two exceptions. Never mm -hmm. understood why a genius hangs out with a jerk. <laughs> right. Watson is a jerk. It didn't make any sense to me. I have to go because I really have no voice, but I would love to continue this, you know, well, when, it, I, when if, I do. If you, uh, if you would like to come back, we would love to have you back on the show some other time to talk about another film. Um, it would be a great honor. Talk about the right. Wrath of Khan. We can talk about oh, that. That would be great. Would love to. That would be great. All right. We'll let you go. I'll pop you out. But thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Will you say hello to your folks for me? We'll Absolutely. For, for sure. For sure. Will do. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Thank Good you. Night. Good night, Nicholas. Bye -bye. Wow. I don't even know what to say. What a treat. Fantastic. That was fantastic. Um, yeah. he, he, he gave us so much. Yeah. So, so much. Um, yeah. Fantastic. And boy, like now that he's gone, I can really say how much I love this movie. I think you said it while he was here too. Oh man, yeah. It, it, no. it, it's even hard for me to figure out because I love this movie literally so much as a kid that um, I was reliving childhood as I watched it again. You know. Let me ask you a question because um, uh, I watched it uh, yesterday again, uh, and there was something that I remembered so clearly that wasn't in the version that I watched last night and I was waiting for it at the very end um, that I remembered uh, tintypes of her in the closing credits. You might be thinking of another time travel movie, maybe, but you mean like from her in that time that, that in the closing credits that they had pictures of her hmm. as his wife back in time oh. over the, and and I, I could have sworn that that was at the end of this film when they're describing like what her life went on to, on to be. But maybe I'm. Um, you know, that sounds it. kind of familiar too to me. But but I didn't miss it when I saw this movie. Maybe you're, we're thinking about. Maybe I'm thinking of Dana Delaney and Tombstone. Possible. <laughs> what happened? There's been a lot of tin types in different movies. It's <laughs> it could be almost any movie. You know, the only thing I guess I'm sorry I didn't really get a chance to ask Nicholas Meyer was if there was a meeting with Mick Jagger, number one, and two, how happy he was that didn't actually happen. <laughs>
Uh yeah, that would have been uh, that would have been interesting. David Warner, Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger could would have I slightly. Worked, I think this worked out slightly different. I think it worked out. Um, so, so we're taking a break for a few weeks. Oh, we're not done. You haven't given me your recast or any I, of the other I, details. I, I was too busy this week. Oh, I didn't do busy. anything. You are horrible. I'm a you lazy, really I'm a lazy, bad disappointing. Person. You're disappointing. I have it worked out. You want to hear mine or do you just I want to hear your, because you didn't do it. Do you not even care that no, I did? I want to hear all of yours. Okay. Here's my recast. Um, I'm going to say, uh, we're going to go with the, uh, you and McGregor for HG Wells. Excellent. I'm going to say, uh, Michael Fassbender for Jack the Ripper. Okay, I have a different one. You said you didn't do him. Why are you interrupted? What, what you said because you didn't I do realized him. I do have one for Jack the Ripper. Oh, who? Um, Javier Bardem. Okay, well, yeah, <laughs> that's true. I don't know how his British accent is, but um, you know, he can work on it. He's a talented. Yeah, he's a talented dude. Um, I'm saying Jennifer Lawrence for the uh, Mary Steenburgen role. Um, I'm down with that. And uh, Giovanni Ribisi is the detective. If he keeps the weight on from, uh, oh, from, from the offer, the offer. Yeah. And the voice. Yeah. I want to hear that voice. That's it. That's all I got. I, that, you know, that, that's pretty good. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Uh, where, what is the ideal way to see this movie? The ideal way to see this movie is over and over again. That's, that's true. I would say <laughs> I would, I would, I would detail that by saying that I think it this may be the best like date movie of its time. I can't really imagine of which, better... of which time, 1979 or 1893. Uh that's a good question. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I really have to recalibrate. I don't know. No, uh, you know, like like that was that's a that's the perfect, that's the ideal date movie, don't you think? Yeah, I did get a little upset about one thing watching this movie. That I, that I I I don't have a time machine and I can't go back and try to date Mary Steenburgen back in 1979. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because well, I just I totally fell in love with her. Well, now that, now that Nicholas Meyer's been on the show, maybe you can talk to him about re, you know doing a spinoff I where you go right. back since 1979 right. while they're making this movie, <laughs> and you can fight with Malcolm McDowell, who's still alive. He's still around. He could do. That's high concept. There Talk about high concept. It's <laughs> okay. like hot tub, hot tub time machine meets hot tub time after time machine. <laughs> I think he might go for it. Oh, uh, yeah. So um, what, are, what, what are we doing next? We talked about. What we're doing next is you're leaving me for a whole other life. You we're having a different life. We're having me. a little, we're having a little time off. Yeah. But then we talked about um, uh, we talked about maybe doing a set when we come back to celebrate brothers. Uh, a bunch of movies about brothers. Since as brothers, we know a little bit about being brothers. We do. We do. And now that might be too much brotherness for people. People, you know, people tuning in might be it might be like a little too much. Too much brother. Maybe we, do, maybe we could do a series about sisters. However, 
you know, let's say we're going to do this. And if people feel strongly, they can contact us through social media or now on the show and say, that's a great idea or, or no. Our producers want to know if we should show some of the photos of Mr. Meyer on set. Why not? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's look at a couple of these. There he is. Yep. Listening and talking to somebody. That's a good one. With very cool glasses. I may have had a pair of glasses like that at one time. I had a sweater like that once. He looks very, nice. very he looks he looks like he was 17 when he was directing this movie. And uh yeah, really 17 years old. He may old, have been so, I mean that's just nuts. And uh, uh and, and I mean we didn't talk about this. I'm sure it's a thing he probably may be sick of talking about, but the fact that we get to watch Mary Steenberg and and Malcolm McDowell fall in love in front of us in real time is an amazing part of this movie you know it's like were they a couple after this like in real life did you, IRL, know, did you are you being that? funny are you being are you being yeah because she she went on to marry ted danson i don't know what you're talking about other than that she was married to malcolm mcdowell they met on this movie they fell in love and they had kids together I didn't know that. Yes. I I only know her as being married to Ted Danson. Oh, I didn't know she was married to Ted Danson. Yes. I knew she was married to Malcolm McDowell because they met on this movie and fell in love during the course of making it. So we must add detective to your list of accomplishments. I think somebody's paying attention. So, so (laughs) maybe my producers will will tell me, am I completely crazy producers? Please tell me. Remember that Steinberger is married to, to, to Ted Danson. I I really, I'm not insane. You must remember that clip because that is, that must be played at every time that uh, Matthew is corrected by me. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, they they fell in love while this movie was being shot, and well, kind of in real time. I, I I can well I can't blame him. Her I don't know about, but him I can't blame. What's wow? Okay, he's a charming I, he's a charming uh, English fellow. He doesn't do it. I'm no. I think he's lovely. He's wonderful. He do great for you. Actor, well, I'm sure he couldn't be happier about than that. I'm sure you just made his night. <laughs> well, as a matter of I fact, I didn't fall in love. It's with One him. less thing he's got to worry about is you <laughs> trying to get. And our producers date. aren't helping me out here with the Ted Danson angle. They, uh, they clearly they've given up on. They me. they knew it too. Let's face it. Um, uh, please help me here. <laughs> Wasn't Mary Steenburgen been married to Ted Danson? And how do you pronounce your last name? Because I'm trying to fudge the 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 pronunciation of Bergman. I think it's Steenbergen. I think it's Steenbergen. I think Bergen. Okay, but I'm not. I I I don't know. I've I've I had the pleasure of meeting her at, uh, at one point. Oh right, very he, very nice. Because person. she and Ted came over to Adams for dinner. I think one night didn't was they? that who was that Ted? I thought he was just the <laughs> chauffeur. <I'm> confused. <laughs> um, oh wait, there's something in the private chat. She's married to Ted five years after Malcolm. She was married to Ted Danson. Thank okay. God. Um, uh, married for 10 years to Malcolm. That's a so good I, long time. That was a good long time. Um, did you know um, that we have a new end screen? No, but he told me this. No. We have a new end screen. Do you want to see it? Does it? If you're going to end the show on me, why don't you prepare me? I don't have. To. 
<laughs> that's that is not the new end screen but that was excellent that Jack is a great Ripper. great moment what a great way to oh, kill that guy off so fantastic do we have any, any we have some other great clips from the movie i think that we might not have watched um the slap we have a nice slap i don't think we watched the slap um and uh i'm going to tell you the truth uh yes i'm going to tell you the truth what's up doc gets a nice um, what's up doc i beg your pardon mm -hmm. there we go that's that's there's a little brandy in the flask if you need it always offer somebody brandy when they're taking sed sedatives and the killer is after them that's what i say palm fruits yeah fries are palm frites are palm frites a killer is after you why don't you take a sedative and have some brandy mm -hmm. <laughs> that will help well that's a very it's a very edwardian thing to do isn't it it is my one of my favorite lines i think perhaps in the whole movie is is uh Chaffee, the detective who Sirius is looking at, he hears the, uh, the whole spiel at, at first. And he goes, I know, he's like, I know something will happen and he's going to kill again. And he just seriously looks at Malcolm McDowell and he goes, do you have spiritual powers? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's great stuff. So, uh, yes, but we do have a new closing sequence. Okay. So maybe it's time to say goodnight and show. Maybe it, it is. It's been a long show. It's, it's, it's been, been an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, we will see you all, our huge number of fans. Oh, uh, we have the, fans. What? We have fans. Don't. We have fans. That's uh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, probably at the end of June, we'll be back. Probably at the end of June. I don't like leaving our audience, no matter how small they are, with that kind of an ender. What I want to say is we're taking a little summer hiatus. Uh, we have to take a little break because Matthew has uh, an enormous amount of work to get his business uh, off the ground. But in Well, three not just my business, my daughter's dance recital, her graduation from high school, all kinds of exciting things like that. Okay. Well, the, the, the other important thing to say is that we will be back in three weeks. I think it'll be four. We'll be back in four weeks, but we'll we will be, be back. back. Not, will, pro not probably. We not will maybe. be back. We'll be you back know. in four weeks. Folks. Yes. Taking a month. Every age is the same. It's only love that makes any of them bearable. Truer words never spoken. Never spoken. All right. Good night, everybody. Talking about cocktails that are stylish, movies great or phony, and how Tony should win and Matthew, then Matthew should win and Tony. But in the meantime, talking about film in the meantime, the Arkin Brothers talk about movies. You've been listening to the Arkin Brothers talk about movies. That's my brother, Matthew Arkin. And that's my brother, Anthony Arkin. And we are interesting, irreverent, and irrelevant. But you can follow us on Instagram anyway. You can also subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch. And you can do it all on our website. Just follow the link on your podcast app. Or if you really want to stalk us, head over to ArkinBros.com. You'll learn more about us than anyone would ever want to know.